Hello, everyone, and welcome to this guest lecture in the guest lecture series from the Mythgard Institute at Signum University. I'm very glad to have each of you here today, and especially to have our guest, Dr. Tom Shippey. Let me do some announcements and introductions before we begin. So I am Serena Higgins. I'm on the faculty of the Mythgard Institute and the host of this series. I want to tell you about several important and interesting things that are going on at Mythgard and at Signum these days. Several exciting programs online and in person, so do check these out. We've got the Silmarillion Film Project going on. This is a podcast series that the Tolkien professor is doing, making an imaginary Silmarillion film adaptation. That's on Friday mornings, so check that out usually every other Friday. Another is his Lord of the Rings online live stream, which is on Friday afternoon when he plays Lord of the Rings online and talks about the lore. So you can check that out through the Mythgard Academy page as well. Now, three other exciting events coming up starting next week is the next free Mythgard Academy course. This is the class um, that the Tolkien professor offers periodically on books of your choice. Supporters vote on which book they would like him to do next. And I'm very happy to say the next book is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clark, a really magnificent work of alternative history, an excellent 20th century novel. So do check out that class. There will be the annual fundraiser coming up, so keep your eye on those details. There will be lots of exciting events, things that you can participate in, and ways that you can support the university. And then finally, a live in-person event if you live Anywhere on the east coast of the United States, we have the Midmoot or the Mid-Atlantic Speculative Fiction Symposium coming up on October 3rd. That's on the Mythgard Academy page under the Events tab, so check that out. Of course, you're welcome. Even if you are not local, we have at least one participant coming from Alaska. So feel free to come and join us on that day, no matter where you live. It will be a fun sort of mini-conference with short papers on speculative fiction topics including some special guests. Corey Olson will be there. Verlin Flieger will be there to speak about her publication of the story of Kullervo. And she will be interviewed by Tolkien languages scholar Carl Hofstetter. So it'll be a wonderful event. And there's also time for fellowship afterwards. So do check that out. Now, there's been a request for those of you who would like to chat amongst yourselves during this lecture. If you want to do that, you can use the Mythgard Academy chat page. So go to the Mythgard Academy and look for the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell page. And the chat icon is in the bottom right if you would like to chat amongst yourselves. So those are the announcements that I would like to make. And I hope that you participate in as many of those as you are able to do. And of course, keep an eye out for the final lecture in this series, which will be in October by Malcolm Geith. And I will announce that date as soon as I am able to do so. Well then, let me introduce today's very special guest, Dr. Tom Shippey, who holds a PhD from Cambridge University and served for many years as the Chair of Humanities at St. Louis University's College of Arts and Sciences. He is a scholar of medieval literature, Anglo-Saxon language and literature, medievalism, modern fantasy, and science fiction. He is one of the world's leading scholars on the works of Tolkien. And as I hope you know, among his publications are The Road to Middle-earth, J.R.R. Tolkien, Author of the Century, and The Oxford Book of Science Fiction Stories. He's published many articles on Beowulf and Anglo-Saxon literature, and he taught our course 
on Tolkien and Beowulf this past spring. He was born in Calcutta, India, and as a child played with a friend's full-grown pet Bengal tiger. And he is here today to speak to us about myth and fairy tale, the invention of fantasy. So please welcome Dr. Tom Shippey. Thanks very much for the introduction, Serena, and I'm very pleased to be uh, one of the guest lecturers on this on this course. Now, um, I have a lot to cover, so I'll, uh, I'll move on pretty fast. Uh, the first thing I did is to put up a, a slide which shows the sections that I'm going to work through. I thought you might like to make a, a note of this, uh, so you can tick them off as I go through them. Um, and while you're looking at that and perhaps writing it down, I've got a few uh, preliminary remarks. Uh, as I say, this myth, fairy tale, fantasy, altogether, it's a very large field. And it's also um, very under researched. Uh, I think this is uh, something of an indictment of the academic profession. I'm retired now, I can say things like that, um, which has uh, preferred uh, to stick to well trodden paths of uh, can canonical authors. Um, I think, I'm afraid, uh, very often out of a kind of literary snobbery. Um, what has often been done is to write fantasy off, as I've often heard people do, as uh, mere escapism, mere populism, uh, nothing to do with, uh, with us intellectual people. Well, it's a neglected field, and the other side of that, of course, is that it's an opportunity. If anybody wants to uh, uh, start uh, uh, new lines in, uh, in academic study, uh, well, there are quite a lot here, and some of them I'll be suggesting as I go through. Um, so it's a, a neglected field, uh, it's an opportunity, it's also, I'm quite sure, an important field. At the start of my book, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, Author of the Century, I think the first sentence was, um, the fantastic is the dominant mode of literature in the 20th century. Um, I won't try to explain the reasons why I said that, they're, they're all in the book, but uh, actually uh, what started me thinking that was an interview I had with a publisher Oh, it must have been 20 years ago. Um, we were talking about the publishing business, and I said to him something like, um, well, here's an idea for a science fiction story. Here's an idea for a historical novel. Here's an idea for a fantasy story. If you were a commissioning editor, and you had to pick one of three, which one you, would you pick? And he said straight away, I'd pick the fantasy story. Uh, I was a bit surprised at the speed with which he, he reacted, so I said, uh, why is that? And he said, and I think these were his, his exact words, and he was a very experienced commissioning editor. He said, only fantasy is mass market. Everything else is cult fiction. And then he paused for a moment and he said, that includes mainstream. Well, that was a, a, very, a, a very outspoken remark. But uh, after I thought a bit, I could see why he made it. If you look at uh, the works which win uh, major literary prizes, how many copies do they sell? Very often, astonishingly few. Um, you look at uh, works of fantasy and, uh, well, the sales figures, uh, you know, Harry Potter, George Martin, J.R.R. Tolkien, etc. Well, they're so big, we don't know how many they sold. But these have been the, uh, the dominant works, not just of the 20th century, but now the 21st century. Now, that's just sales figures. And I know you can actually sell an awful lot of copies with um, stuff that I don't have much respect for. I haven't, I haven't failed to notice the sales of Fifty Shades of Grey, for instance. Okay, well, I'm not going to try and, and defend that. But uh, there can be good reasons, 
as well as bad reasons for immense popularity. And the fantasy works I've been talking about, they have the immense popularity, and that, I think, is for a good reason, for a sensible reason. And uh, we in the academic profession should have spent more time working that out. Well, uh, that applies to all the bits that I'm going to talk about today, myth and fairy tale and the invention of fantasy. So that was my preliminary remarks, my prolegomena, as they say, and uh, I'll now start the, uh, the uh, sections which I've put up on slide one. So um, uh, my first question, uh, myth and fairy tale, how are they connected? I think I can answer that quite, quite easily. Um, uh, Serena, could we have slide two straight away? There we are. Uh, here's uh, C.S. Lewis's last novel. Uh, I've got a copy of it here. Um, Till We Have Faces, and you will observe the subtitle, A Myth Retold. And that's exactly what it is. It is the myth of Cupid and Psyche, and as uh, Lewis says in the preface to, to the book, he found it told in a, a Latin work by Lucius Apuleius Platonicus called The Golden Ass. And he, Lewis gave quite a long summary uh, uh, of the myth, which is too long for me to read out here, so I'll do an, a very brief summary. And it goes like this. A king had three daughters, of whom the youngest, her name was Psyche, was so beautiful that she was adored as a goddess. This aroused the anger of Venus, who sent her son Cupid to punish her. But Cupid fell in love with Psyche instead and installed her in his palace. He visited her only by night and he forbade her to see his face. Her two sisters were jealous of this and of the great palace which, uh, which they saw and they persuaded her to break the taboo imposed by her lover. So she lit a lamp uh, and looked at the face of her lover Cupid. And because she broke Cupid's order, Cupid left her, and she was set many laborious tasks by Cupid's mother, Venus, uh, to regain him, which in the end she passed. Okay, okay, um, that's the myth. But as I've been telling you this, surely you've realized it's also a fairy tale. It's got uh, the beautiful girl, it's got the handsome lover, and of course it's got the jealous sisters. What we're looking at, surely, is something like Cinderella, the sequel. It's what happens after Charming, Prince Charming and Cinderella uh, have, uh, have joined hands. Uh, things can go wrong even after marriage, and in this case they do. Okay, uh, well, that's uh, Till We Have Faces, a myth retold. Can we have slide three, Serena? This is Lewis's uh, third novel in the Space Trilogy series, which I prefer to call the Ransom Trilogy series. And you can see it's called That Hideous Strength, and the subtitle this time is A Modern Fairy Tale for Grown-Ups. Um, but actually, it isn't, or at least it isn't, obviously. It's not a fairy tale. It's a myth. It retells, in modern terms, uh, the myth from, from the book of Genesis of the Tower of Babel. How... The people tried to, in their pride, tried to build a tower up to the heavens, and God punished them by giving them all different languages so they couldn't understand each other anymore, from which we get the Tower of Babel and our word Babel. Uh, well, uh, yes, so it's a myth. Um, as far as I can see, there's no trace of a fairy tale in it at all. 
uh, in uh, the myth retold, I can see the fairy tale. In the fairy tale, the modern fairy tale for grown-ups, uh, 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 I can see only the myth. Um, am I missing something here? Is there a fairy tale in there? Or was C.S. Lewis perhaps kidding? No, no. I think what he was telling us was, that's what a myth is. A myth is a fairy tale for grown-ups. So, myth can contain fairy tale, but fairy tale can grow up and become myth. So, anyway, that is how myth and fairy tale are connected, at least in the mind of C.S. Lewis, and that's a pretty good mind to take uh, to pay attention to. Uh, right, that was section one, myth and fairy tale, how they're connected. Section two, myth and fairy tale, how they're different. Well, uh, first question is, uh, what is a myth? And if we can have slide four, there we are. Um, I'm not going to try and give a definition of myth. Many people have tried to do this, and they all come up with different answers. So I'm just calling it some ideas about myth. The first thing, which most of us understand, is um, they aren't true, or at least they aren't true in the real world. If I say unicorns are mythical, uh, I mean that they don't exist anymore. Um, so myth has a sense of, uh, of uh, not being true to the real world. Another thing is that myths are uh, typically about gods and goddesses or about human interaction with the divine. Uh, Venus and Adonis, okay, Orpheus and Eurydice, okay, Thor and Loki, these are all myths. They're all about interactions of human beings and, and, and divinities. And I would also say, this is just an idea, not a definition, they're there to explain something. And an idea which I rather like, though I can't always get it to work, but sometimes I can get it to work, is that myths are there to help us resolve contradictions in the world around us. Uh, here's one contradiction which occurs to, I'm sorry to say, must occur to, to all of us. If we believe in an all-powerful God who loves us, why is there so much grief and suffering in the world? It's a thought that you really can't avoid. You know, in the, in the little village I, I, I live in, uh, we have a, a parish priest, uh, the Reverend Still. Terrific chap. I have the greatest respect for him. Um, a few weeks ago, his daughter, Alice, age 23, uh, crashed her car and was killed. Uh, and we don't know why or, or how it happened. She, no other vehicle involved. She just somehow drove off the road, went through a hedge, went down a hill, car turned over, and she was killed. Why do these things happen? Um, we can't avoid asking that question. Right. Have we got a myth to explain this? Yes, we have. Can we have a start, uh, slide five? Uh, this is uh, the start of Milton's poem, Paradise Lost of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose fatal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. Sing, heavenly muse. What brings all the woe into the world? It is the myth of Adam and Eve and uh, the Garden of Eden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the prohibition which they break. Well, uh, I won't go on to try to explain the theology of it, but surely this is a case of a myth which answers that inevitable question which I put uh, a couple of minutes ago. Well, um, 
that applies to uh, to uh, uh, the book of Genesis, but actually, it's kind of got some sort of relationship, hasn't it, to uh, to the myth of Cupid and Psyche. Psyche is the word for soul, all right, and Cupid is the god of love. So you might say that the question that the myth asks is, why are our souls alienated from the love of God, and what do we have to do to regain it? Um, and you can't help thinking, if you go along with that, that there is a sort of explanation there in the ugly sisters who are, what's the sin that causes the alienation of the soul from God? Well, in the story by Apuleius, um, it's uh, jealousy. They're jealous of uh, Psyche's magnificent palace and, her, and all her possessions. But Lewis says that as soon as he read that, he thought that's not a good answer. That's really a kind of cheap motivation. He thought that that couldn't be couldn't be it wasn't good enough. Um, so in his story, actually there is a sin, and it's Oroal's sin, but it's not a mere envy of possessions. It is actually more like jealousy. She's jealous of Psyche loving somebody else. She doesn't want Psyche to love somebody else. She wants Psyche to love only her. So the sin there is possessiveness, about which Lewis wrote in many places. But you might say that the myth here is telling us something like the reason we are alienated, the reason our souls are alienated from the love of God is, uh, is possessiveness. Of course it it comes over much better as a story than as a kind of brief summary that I, I've given it. So one thing I would then go on to say about myths is that myths are meaningful and they're often sad. Fairy tales are for fun and they typically have happy endings. Um, myths are not for fun and they very often don't have happy endings. But there's another thing that connects myth and fairy tale and now I'm on to Section 3, and this is uh, what I call the Grimmian Revolution, the revolution brought about by Jacob Grimm. Because one of the things that connects myth and fairy tale is that for hundreds of years, they were not taken seriously. Fairy tales were for children, so that was, that was them out of the way. As for myths, well, pagan myths, the, the pagan myths of classical antiquity, which all educated people knew about, they were false. They were just plain false. As for Christian myths, they weren't myths, they were true. So mythology, in this 18th century view, shall we say, was, uh, was, was something else. It wasn't us, it was, it was other people. And it's too, uh, while possibly interesting, even for educated people, uh, w w was downgraded, not quite as much as fairy tale, but still uh, considerably uh, a, a subject to look down on. Well, this situation of uh, fairy tales and myths not being taken seriously was changed by one man, and his name was Jacob Grimm. Um, I simply can't tell you about the importance to every field of the humanities uh, that Grimm had, and I may say also to world politics. This is one of those things which I can only state because I haven't got time to go into it, but it is a a very remarkable topic. Um, later on, I'm going to give a reference to a website called uh, Academia Edu, academia.edu. Uh, and uh, I've just put an article up on it, a short article, which is called uh, Grimm's Law, uh, How One Man Revolutionized the Humanities. 
I'll explain later on how you get to it. But if you want to follow up a bit on Grimm, that, uh, that short article will give you at least an idea of it. Uh, putting it very briefly, Grimm was the Darwin of the humanities. He changed everything in the humanities area in the 19th century. Well, now, of course, he's remembered mostly for the collection of fairy tales which he made with his brother Wilhelm, the House on Kindermärchen, the, the household and, uh, and children's tales, uh, which was, so I'm told, uh, rather like Tolkien, uh, the 19th century all-world bestseller, translated into virtually every language, uh, and, uh, and nobody has the faintest idea how many copies of it were sold. But not only were the, uh, the, the household tales very widely read themselves, they set off a kind of European arms race. Every nation in Europe seemed to feel we've got to have a collection of fairy tales or we just, we just, we just won't count, we won't be a nation. And it extended also to America. I often ask people this, have you ever read Hiawatha? And most Americans say, well, no, but I remember it from school. Well, Hiawatha has two obvious sources. One is a collection of Algonquin folk tales uh, collected, by, collected by a man called Schoolcraft, inspired by Grimm. And the other is the uh, Finnish romantic epic put together, compiled uh, by uh, Elias Lundroth, uh, a great... Uh, a great exercise in nation formation. Finland wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the Kalevala. But a great exercise in nation formation, and once again, inspired by Grimm. Well, uh, the uh, slide I've just put up is the um, uh, title page. No, no, sorry, it's the dedication page uh, to the Ice collection of Icelandic folktales, which is probably the best collection of folktales in the world, never been translated. Hmm. Well, anyway, there's the dedication, and what it says. Um, in Icelandic, of course, is, and I'm sort of reading from the bottom, um, these folk tales, folk sagas, really, are dedicated to um, the revered doyen of Freydimana. Freydi is wisdom. It's the same root as Frodo, actually. So Freydi men are wisdom men, scholars. The revered doyen of scholars Jakob Grimm, and then it says, Hervondi Althusliga Sagna Freidi. Freidi, once again, is wisdom. Sagna Freidi is wisdom about sagas. But in Icelandic, that means history. And what he's being credited with is being the author of popular history. But actually, having said that, I thought it's not really popular history. What they mean is history of the peoples. And I think I would actually retranslate that as dedicated to Jacob Grimm, the originator of folk history. Not quite the same thing as popular history. Anyway, that's the dedication to Grimm, and it's one of many dedications which you find all over Europe. His influence on folk tales and on literary studies and on all kinds of other things, including history, <clears throat> well, uh, you, you, you cannot overestimate it. Um, but note that, um, why was Grimm interested in fairy tales? It wasn't actually fairy tales for themselves. He thought that fairy tales were the detritus, the rubble, so to speak, of the old pagan Germanic mythology. And he studied the fairy tales because he wanted to see what 
elements of that mythology he could extract uh, from the fairy tales. He wanted to reconstruct a mythology, and he did. He, he and Wilhelm brought out the, uh, the uh, House and Kindermärchen, 1812 to 1814. Twenty years later, Grimm brought out his, uh, his very large book, four volumes of it, Deutsche Mythologie, Germanic Mythology. It was <clears throat> translated into English rather carefully, not as Germanic, but as Teutonic Mythology, because Germanic was, for English speakers, a bit too competitive. So Grimm uh, was interested in fairy tales. He was also fascinated by mythology. And what he did was to make the study of fairy tales and of mythology a serious intellectual project. Right, now I go on to section four, which is theorizing myth. Well, um, once again, I can't, uh, I can't, uh, <laughs> I can't even try to uh, to summarize the whole subject of theorizing with, but here's a couple of observations. <coughs> what was the root of Tolkien's, Tolkien's mythology, Tolkien's personal mythology? It was elves. Where did he get the idea of elves from? Not, I think, from reading elf stories, though of course they, you know, he incorporated them all. I think actually he was reading Grimm's Deutsche Mythologie and its Danish competitor, Grundvig's Norden's mythology, and he was dissatisfied with their explanations. The inspiration for a good deal of uh, creative work, I think, in the 19th and 20th centuries was not so much the mythologies themselves, it was the theories about mythology. Well, what happened with Tolkien, I think, was he read Grimm, who was commenting on the Icelander Snorri Sturluson's account of the elves, and Snorri said there were three kinds of elves, light elves, Dark elves and swart elves. Okay, okay, we, we got it. Swart elves are obviously dwarves. So what are these light elves? Well, we've got a good idea what they are. But what are these rather mysterious dark elves in between light elves and swart elves? Well, Grimm came up with a really bad explanation. He said, well, maybe they were kind of, you know, sort of, he used the word fuscus, uh, Latin fuscus, which I think means sort of dingy. They were sort of dingy elves, kind of grey or grubby elves. Well, Tolkien didn't like that at all. Um, on the other hand, uh, Grundtvig came up with a better idea, which Tolkien didn't forget. He said, well, perhaps there's light elves and there's swart elves, and in between there are skumrings alva. Skumring is our word shimmering, but it means twilight. There were elves of the twilight. Well, Tolkien, I think, thought about these and thought, oh, Grunvig's not bad, Grimm's absolutely hopeless. I've got to have a better explanation. And his explanation, as we all know, was that uh, light elves and dark elves and so on had nothing to do with the color of their skin. What it had to do with was whether they'd seen the light or whether they had not seen the light. So they were, as it were, illuminated elves and <clears throat> elves still in the darkness, the Moriquendi. Um, well, that, I think, was the start of Tolkien's whole mythology. Um, that, was, that was the start of the Silmarillion. Um, meanwhile, another example, going back to Lewis's uh, Till We Have Faces. Of all the theorizers of mythology, the most influential was surely J.G. Fraser, who wrote his book The Golden Bough, which eventually came out in 12 volumes. You don't need to read the 12 volumes. Actually, if you read the first 50 pages, you will have got Fraser's basic idea. And uh, Fraser's basic idea was drawing on 
material recovered by anthropologists and drawing on accounts of strange practices in the classical world, in the Roman world, uh, he uh, said that there was a widespread belief that the health and fertility of a land were intimately connected with the health and fertility of its ruler. So, um, if you had a barren ruler, uh, then you had a wasteland. And if you had a wasteland, then the cause was some failure in the ruler. And if there was such a failure in the ruler, then what you did was to kill the ruler, or kill the priest, in the case of the golden bough itself, and get another one, who would recharge the land uh, spiritually in some way. Well, uh, I'll just give you some titles and you will realize how widespread this theory became. Uh, T.S. Eliot's famous poem, The Wasteland, where does he get that from? Right, J.G. Fraser. Mary Renault's uh, historical novel, The King Must Die, where does she get that from? J.G. Uh, Fraser. You've seen the movie with Robin Williams in it, The Fisher King? Fraser all the way. You've seen the movie, the Arthurian movie by John Boorman, Excalibur? Fraser, Fraser, really all the way. It's, uh, uh, the whole thing is uh, is is Fraserian. Um, Fraser is like Freud. Uh, you know, he's one of those people uh, whose main idea is very widely known, even by people who've never read a word of it. Well, um, going back to Lewis's novel, uh, it's quite clear that the inhabitants of the land in which Psyche and, and Zistra in the novel the inhabitants of the land in which she and her sisters live, uh, they're Fraserians. When they have a, 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 a drought and a moraine, uh, they blame the king. Uh, the king has no sons, he only has daughters. And when the, 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 the townspeople riot, one of them shouts out, barren king makes barren land. That's the, that's the basic Fraser uh, remark. Um, the king is then frightened, it's a very powerful scene in, uh, in uh, Lewis, the king is then frightened that they're going to sacrifice him when the priests come to call on him. And he is suddenly terribly relieved when he realizes they're not going to sacrifice him, they're going to sacrifice his daughter instead. Um, so the king and the, the population generally are all followers of J.G. Fraser. Yes, but there are other theories about myth, aren't there? And they all come into the novel. Uh, the tutor of the princesses is a Greek rationalist. I would call him a Stoic. Um, and his belief about myths is kind of what I said a while back. They're not true. Uh, he says myths, they're just lies, lies of poets. They're just stories. There's nothing to be gained from them. Um, okay, uh, well, he then is, uh, has a different attitude to myth. Uh, but there's another character. He's a priest of, uh, of um, uh, the kind of rather horrible pagan religion they have in the uh, in the country, but he's a, a new and up-to-date priest, and he is quite clearly a follower of Max Miller. Max Miller was another 19th century theorist of myth, and Miller, uh, his theory was that everything, all myths were really nature myths. They were all about dawn or about the sun, you know, about sun deities, or they were about the rain falling and fertility and so on. The, the trouble with this was, as people very soon pointed out, was that in Muller everything kind of came out the same. But just the same, the new and up-to-date priest, at one point he expresses very clearly the, uh, the uh, belief of Max Muller. He's a Mullerian. Yeah, and late on in the story, 
Oruwal, who is now on a trip through her kingdom, through her queendom, I should say, um, she comes upon another priest. And his, this priest is actually, I didn't realize this the first time I read it, or indeed the second, but this priest is a follower of Jane Harrison, who founded a school of mythical interpretation called the Cambridge Ritualists. And they believed, I've never been able to make sense of this, what they believed was that myths didn't mean anything. What they were was accounts of the rite that was carried out in a temple. So the rite came first, the ritual came first, and the myth came along as a kind of record of it. And my question would be, oh, where did the ritual come from then? Oh, well, never mind. Um, but uh, uh, the question of which is right that doesn't matter very much. Lewis clearly thought that none of these were correct. But what I'm saying is, um, till we have faces, is a kind of tour through mythological theories. And the point is that all of them are inadequate in some way or other. So what's the adequate one? Well, there's one more theorist of myth, and this is one which Lewis obviously took more seriously, but it's not a very nice one. If we can have uh, slide seven, um, these are the words of the old priest, the old priest of Ungit, the kind of Venus figure that they have, who um, is there before the new up-to-date priest who follows Max Miller. And uh, what he has to say about myth is actually illogical, um, unpleasant, uh, but also very powerful. I can't help thinking that this old priest, in a way, has become a kind of spokesman uh, for Lewis. And you can see what he says uh, on the slide that I've put up. And what it says is that actually interpreting myths is very difficult. Nothing that is said clearly can be said truly about them. Holy wisdom is not thin and clear like water, but thick and dark like blood. Well, the old priest is a, a cruel old man who presides over human sacrifice and other unpleasant practices, which Lewis just hints at. But there's a feeling that for all his unpleasantness, he knows something. He has a debate with the Greek Stoic who represents, I suppose, modern rationalist opinion, and there's no doubt who wins. Oruwal, who is listening, and the Greek has been her tutor, says if she had the power, she'd have hung the old priest and, uh, and uh, uh, made uh, her, her tutor a counselor. But, she says, for all her preferences, she could see on which side the power lay. So, uh, there are several theories uh, running around about myth, um, and uh, Lewis does not um, authenticate any of them. He leaves it to us to work out uh, our own answers there. But uh, my point is that uh, uh, this work is a kind of tour through theories of myth and that much creative work in the 19th and 20th century sprang from theories of myth. It was a very powerful and productive field. Well, by the end of the 19th century, all these were stewing around. Fairy tales, myths, theories about myth, they're all expressed in Britain, if you want a, a central figure, uh, by a man called Andrew Lang. And here's something worth knowing. If you uh, have a Kindle, a Kindle reader, you can download the entire works of Andrew Lang for nothing. Uh, best, best bargain I've come across is 12 collections of fairy tales, his, uh, 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 his novels, uh, his uh, 
his uh, learned works, including modern mythology and myth, ritual, and religion. There's one thing that the Kindle editors missed, actually. They missed Lang's introduction to the household tales of the Brothers Grimm. But that's online, too. If you Google Andrew Lang and uh, household tales, I think you'll uh, find it pop up. Well, Andrew Lang, of course, was the person in whose honor uh, Tolkien gave his lecture on fairy tales, on fairy stories, I should say. That was the Andrew Lang lecture for whichever year it was, 1947, I think. Um, but Lang, uh, and Tolkien had been reading Lang since he was, you know, a child. Uh, Lang is another figure who has been uh, more or less forgotten. Well, uh, everything, as I say, was stewing around in the works of people like Lang, theories about myth, fairy tales, uh, collections of, of mythology. Uh, but they then entered, and now I'm on to, to section five, a new factor. And the new factor was um, uh, what I call the new romancers. Um, in my youth, when I was an undergraduate, we, we, we were taught all the time about the rise of the novel. And what happened in this rather simple theory was that uh, Cervantes' Don Quixote destroyed romance. It was a satire of romance, and after that you couldn't take romance seriously. Romance was replaced by the realistic novel, and the true history of literature ever after that was the realistic novel. In fact, you know, in four words, romance bad, romance out. Novel good, novel in. That's eight words, actually, but you get the idea. Um, well, uh, so so it appeared. We had all the uh, the great novelists that we're supposed to read uh, uh, in, in English literature courses. Um, but what happened was in the 1880s and 1890s, when all the fairy tales and the theories of myth were stewing around, we got a new set of writers who you might call the new romancers. Now, who were they? Well, uh, Ryder Haggard who wrote King Solomon's Mines, Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote Treasure Island, and of course, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Conan Doyle, who invented Sherlock Holmes, Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, H.G. Wells, The Invisible Man. Uh, and actually, um, well, from what I've said already, I'm sure you realize if you read comic books at all, or you go to the movies, what I just described are the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So the new romancers are still arrive, alive and powerful in, uh, you might say, uh, uh, popular literature, popular fiction, and popular movies. How many Dracula movies have there been? I used to know once, but take it from me, an awful lot of them. Um, none of these authors, when I was young, ever made it onto university syllabuses. Um, they dominate uh, popular fiction movies right up to now, uh, and... Uh, what happened, in a way, was that uh, the fairy tale and the myth and the new romances all came together. Oh, there's one more in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Tom Sawyer. Yes. Here's something they probably won't tell you in American literature courses. What's Tom Sawyer? Surely, the important thing about Don Quixote, who we are told destroyed the novel, uh, destroyed the romance, was that he was a wannabe. A wannabe. And that's what Tom Sawyer is, isn't it? He's a wannabe. His mind has been completely addled by reading The Count of Monte Cristo and The Three Musketeers and stuff like that. And Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, it's a kind of clash between somebody fascinated by romance and somebody, uh, and, and who is a wannabe, that's Tom, and somebody who is quite happy being himself and who is much more realistic and practical, and that's Huck.
it's a kind of contest between, you might say, two literary modes. Anyway, Tom Sawyer is in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and, and I now realize why. He fits there very well. Well, um, it was at that point, I think, that, uh, that uh, it all came together. And if we could have slide, uh, uh, lost count now, um, slide eight, uh, you'll see what I mean. There you are. There's a novel by uh, H. Ryder Haggard and Andrew Lang. Uh, collaborating on this on this book called *The World's Desire*, so the fairy tale people, the myth people, and the new romancers really were in touch with each other and collaborating. This was the point when fantasy came together. Okay, that's my section six. Um, fantasy comes together. Putting it very briefly, Tolkien, I'm sure, uh, was he fits very well into the pattern of the new romancers. I haven't time to explain why, but I really think he fits very well. Uh, and he, of course, was fascinated by fairy tales and by mythology and a creator of his own mythology. One thing that I slightly regret is that uh, Tolkien's dominance uh, has actually put into the shade a, a whole tradition of American fantasy with really powerful authors, I think, like H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, who created his own mythology, the Cthulhu mythology, like uh, Jack Vance, great author, died only recently, who is like fairy tale on steroids, or like, uh, shall we say, Ursula Le Guin, another author who fits most of my patterns very well, or come to think of it, George R. R. Martin. All these authors, except for Ursula, I think, learned their trade in the world of pulp fiction. There was a kind of pulp fiction variant on the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and uh, it uh, ran along, so to speak, in parallel with the British-European tradition. And it's still, of course, still, of course, going. But there was a whole explosion of talent. It, it seems to me it really was like an explosion. All the ingredients were mixed up together, and they turned into gunpowder, and somebody threw a match into it, and bang, suddenly, fantasy was born. There was one thing missing. And this is section seven, theorizing fairy tale. If we could have slide nine, uh, my, uh, my view about fairy tales is that uh, they're transparent. What's Little Red Riding Hood about? It's about doing what mummy says and not stepping off the path because there's wolves out there. And at a very early stage, people realize that the wolves were the dangerous wolves. This is Angela Carter speaking, the dangerous wolves are the ones which are hairy on the inside. They are the ones which are dangerous to young girls. Not for nothing do we use the term a wolf to mean a male sexual predator. Okay, fairy tales are transparent. Uh, they're also suggestive. Isn't it strange that Cinderella has kind of two mothers? There's a wicked stepmother and there's a fairy godmother. Surely they're a kind of split they're a split of your real mother, who can be very annoying and tell you to tidy your room and doesn't pay attention to you and so on. And there's your fairy godmother, who, the good mother, who, who kind of gives you things and loves you and, and, and is your greatest supporter. Well, okay, I won't pursue that, uh, that idea, but that's the kind of suggestiveness which fairy tales have. And last thing, they're pliable. Many people have criticized the Grimm's fairy tales particularly for being sexist. Okay, okay, uh, maybe they are. In that case, you just rewrite them. Uh, you can rewrite them so they're not, so they're feminist. And writing feminist fairy tales has been a major activity of the last, oh, I don't know, 40 years. Um, 
this is actually where I, I, I can give you a reference. Um, uh, if we could have slide uh, 10, I think we've got up to now. Um, uh, I wrote a piece called Rewriting the Core, Transformations of the Fairy Tale in Modern Fiction. Much of it was about Angela Carter, whose uh, works you, I hope, know, including you know, The Bloody Chamber and The Company of Wolves. But there are plenty others, like, uh, well, Margaret Atwood, who rewrote a fairy tale in modern terms, a modern fairy tale for grown-ups, as Lewis put it, called Bluebeard's Egg. But believe me, there's a whole shed load of them. Uh, one of the collections uh, showing how pliable the fairy tale could be was Jack Zipes's collection, Don't Bet on the Prince. They were all feminist fairy tales, and the lead story, I remember, was called The Princess Who Stood on Her Own Two Feet. So, you can, if you don't like fairy tales the way they are, you can rewrite them, and they will still have the same kind of power and effect. Anyway, if you go to this, uh, uh, this website, uh, Academia Adu, log in, put, put me into the search, and you'll find Rewriting the Core, and you will also actually find the, the piece I mentioned earlier, Grimm's Law, How One Man Revolutionized the Humanities. Okay, well, both those are, I say those sort of apologetically, because I don't have time to go into those topics. My last section, Deep Down Patterns. Why are myths and fairy tales so powerful and so enduring? Why do they hang on if, for so many centuries, they were regarded as uh, not serious, not worth the attention of uh, intelligent people? Well, I think the answer to that is simple. Uh, myths and fairy tales mirror universal experience. Universal experience? Surely we've all been taught that different cultures experience things different ways. Yeah, well, uh, some truth in that. But there's one universal experience which every human being undergoes, uh, and that is growing up. So, what do you have to do to grow up? Well, here are the rules for growing up, put by my old friend Derek Brewer, uh, unfortunately, my late friend Derek Brewer. And uh, this is put, uh, Brewer put it with deliberate bluntness, and you can see what it says. Uh, examples of, uh, of uh, uh, the male myth? Well, uh, you might say, what about the story of Odysseus? This is, a, this is a story, you might say, of someone who breaks the rules for growing up. Uh, he kills his father, uh, but he doesn't dodge his mother, and he doesn't win his girl, because his girl is his mother. So that's a failure. As for uh, uh, the female protagonist, well, I, I had other examples in mind, but actually, it just so happens that a couple of days ago, I was watching the animated film of Neil Gaiman's story, young adult story, Coraline. Well, if you want an example of uh, the female version of this story, somebody who has to dodge her father, neutralize her mother, and not find a mate, because it's actually a young adult story, but uh, in a way, put herself into a position of independence. Read, uh, watch Coraline, or read Coraline. Um, I don't think that, uh, I'm quite sure, uh, uh, Neil Gaiman hadn't read my pal Derek Brewer, but that's because the stories are mirroring universal experience. And of course, they're not all the same story. You can always, in fact, you must always, ring some kind of change on it. But the story is there, the pattern is there, deep down. And I would say that the patterns are there, even in the classic novels, which I was told to read, 
uh, as an undergraduate. Perhaps there's no more classic novel than Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. But doesn't it actually show the same pattern that, that, that Professor Brewer pointed out? Uh, Elizabeth Bennet, who of course has developed a new life as Bridget Jones in Bridget Jones's diary, uh, she has a, a bird brain mother who wants to marry her off to the first person who will take her. Not a good idea. So she has to, shall we say, severely neutralize her mother. Elizabeth doesn't have to dodge her father, but her father is, like the father of Cinderella in the fairy tale, frankly useless. Uh, no help at all, no support, and uh, gets a certain amount of criticism from Jane Austen for his failure to look after his, his daughters. And another thing that Brewer pointed out is that um, one way you ring the changes in stories like this is to have splits. You have a character who can be split several ways to go in different directions. And that's what happens with Elizabeth. She has her four sisters, and they take, or they look as if they're taking, different life paths which are disastrous. Her younger, flippity-gibbet sister, Lydia, she runs off with a, a deceiving man, and uh, the likelihood is that he will dump her and ditch her, and then she will be useless in the marriage market, and her only future will be, frankly, as a prostitute. Jane Austen actually says, go on the town, which means become a prostitute. Um, meanwhile, Jane, Elizabeth's nice sister, is uh, very nice in every way and certainly not going to run off with a, with a handsome predator or anything like that. But she hasn't got much push. Uh, and actually, in the very competitive situation that these girls are in, because they have no money, um, in the competitive situation they're in, uh, Jane isn't going to hack it. Uh, if she's left to herself, she will become Miss Nice Girl, which means old maid in waiting. And old maids with no money in the world of Jane Austen, that's not a good thing to be. So Elizabeth is the, is the success, but there are failures next to her, or, or should we say potential failures next to her. They are rescued from their fate, mostly by Mr. Darcy. Well, uh, that's the pattern underlying it. One other classic novel, when I was young, actually, I was told not to read it um, because what I was told was that there were serious authors like uh, James Joyce and Henry James, but Charles Dickens, he wasn't serious. He wasn't a novelist. He was just an entertainer. Oh, dear me. Heaven, heaven preserve us from entertainers, especially if they're entertaining. Well, the greatest novel of the 19th century is David Copperfield. I won't give you, try to give you the story of David Copperfield. Here's an exercise for you, if you feel like it. It really won't take you long. David Copperfield was issued in 20 monthly numbers. Read the first of them, the first three chapters, and look for the mythic element in there. I'll give you a clue. One is the story of Lazarus, who's brought back from the dead. Here's another clue. Little David is taken to a, a boat uh, on the seashore, which is like Noah's Ark. And indeed, the boy he finds there, uh, his kind of uh, uh, contemporary, he's called Ham, which of course, again, gives you the clue to Noah's Ark. And actually, the, uh, the, 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 so the apparent father in the family is Mr. Peggotty, 
and Pegatis are wooden dolls such as you find in Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark, the Noah's Ark David goes to, is the safe place. It's the safe place from the sea. It's also the safe place from sex because those first three chapters tell you about how David, little David, is betrayed by his mother. She's a widow, but she marries again. And the person she marries is Mr. Murdstone. And Mr. Murdstone is, is a new father, but the fear is he's the old father come back. Murd and stone. David is very frightened of gravestones. Well, it's a, I won't say any more. It's a really, it's crazy mixed up stuff. It's highly Freudian, but that's where the energy comes from. The whole thing is drawing on the myth, the myth pattern, which Derek Brewer pointed out. Um, what David has to do is to get away from his stepfather, get away from his mother, and finally come to some kind of sexual harmony which uh, actually he finds very difficult. And he has around him, just as with Elizabeth Bennet, a series of failed characters who go wrong one way or the other. And David has to try to grow up by taking a kind of middle path through it all. Well, the energy of that great novel, however, I think, comes quite unknown to Dickens. Dickens had no idea of what this was about. Ten days before that first monthly uh, number actually had to be on sale in the in the bookstores not just delivered to the printer it was due on the on the newsstands and tenders he hadn't written a word of it and he didn't know what it was going to be about it all came from somewhere deep inside dickens's own strange contorted psyche and as with many of dickens's novels you notice the initial change cd for charles dickens becomes dc David Copperfield. He wrote it from his inside. Okay, um, well, I come to my conclusions, and I can state them quite briskly. Fairy tales, their universal experience is growing up. They're about growing up. Myths are fairy tales for grown-ups. They are about the problems of being grown up. And in particular, the problems are the power of evil and the fear of death. You can see it in Tolkien. Bilbo's story, surely, is about growing up. Frodo's story is about having to be a grown-up, having to assume the responsibilities of a grown-up. You can see it in J.K. Rowling. What do we see in J.K. Rowling? We see Harry growing up. But as he grows up, he has to face evil and death. In fact, he has to go through death in a way. You can see it in authors like Ursula Le Guin. Uh, again, if you want a, a story which absolutely uh, exemplifies the kind of thing I've been talking about, read Ursula Le Guin's magnificent young adult novel. Um, it's called Threshold, or alternatively, The Beginning Place. I can never remember which is the British and which is the American title, but Threshold or The Beginning Place. most popular literary genre and my professorial colleagues often said and I've heard them say it uh, it's just escapist trash no um, my 
my response to the question, why is it so popular? It provides answers. It provides answers to the big questions. And actually, the big questions always did have answers. Where does evil come from? Well, we, we have myths to explain that kind of thing. But the trouble is that all those old answers during the terrible experiences of the first half of the 20th century, basically industrialized warfare, all those answers, well, at least you have to say they were challenged. I won't say they were refuted or replaced, but they were challenged. And, uh, and new answers had to be found or new ways of putting the old answers. So perhaps I will end. My last slide is uh, a quote from Kurt Vonnegut. Um, I had a very interesting evening once talking to Kurt Vonnegut, and I've never forgotten it. And in his comic way, this is what he says. This guy says an interesting thing to Billy. He said, everything there was to know about life was in the classic novel, The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. But that isn't enough anymore, said Rosewater. So you can learn everything you need to know about life from classic novels. But nowadays, in the 21st century, that isn't enough anymore. And where you have to get the enough from nowadays is fantasy. Thanks very much. And I'll be happy now to take questions. Thank you very much for that, Tom. That was very, very enjoyable. I especially enjoyed the reading of Fully Have Faces. We have lots of good responses and questions here from the listeners. First okay. of all, a couple of them wrote at the very beginning and said they wished that you could hear them clapping and they were applauding for you when you were here. <laughs> I wish I could hear it too. There we are. Uh, right. Um, well, I, I know I left a lot of things out because there's just so much to talk about. But uh, if I can uh, uh, go back over any, I'd be happy to do so. Great. Well, some of the questions do take take back over some of the material. Richard Rowland asked whether we could get a list of good mythographical works if they want to read deeper. I suppose you could list off the main titles from the five or six or so you covered for us. Yeah. Well, I'm supposed to uh, uh, have written the entry on mythography uh, for um, uh, a work which you now find online, uh, which is called the uh, called Ernie, the Encyclopedia of Romantic Nationalism in Europe. And uh, I keep I keep failing on this because there's so many of them. But if you do go into Ernie, uh, as I say, Encyclopedia of Rational, Romantic Nationalism in Europe, you could find my, uh, my essay on Germanic mythology, which um, covers a lot of the responses to, uh, to especially the rediscovery of Norse mythology. But um, um, there really are uh, kind of more than you can shake a stick at. Uh, um, uh, let me think. Um, I mentioned Fraser, yes, and, and all the other ones that Lewis mentions. Um, uh, I think actually uh, Lang is a good person to look at uh, in, the, uh, in the 19th century, uh, and he picks up quite a lot of the stuff which came from Grimm and, and Grundtvig. A German that I thought very highly of, and other people did as well, was the uh, romantic poet Ludwig Uhland, who wrote some some terrific sort of allegorical explanations of myth, which were so good that I actually felt like believing them. Uh, normally, I don't go for allegory, but but his were so so persuasive. I, I nearly nearly changed my mind. Um, 
I guess in the modern world, well, uh, there's of course Joseph Campbell, a hero with a thousand faces. That's a kind of monomyth idea. There was uh, the French writer uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss uh, with his book The Savage Mind, which I think is a bit um, condescending, actually. Uh, uh, he thinks he knows better than the, the savage mind. Um, uh, there was the, uh, the British authors like Bronislaw Malinowski, who was very affected by, um, by the uh, anthropology of the Pacific Islands. Um, I was, uh, I was uh, kind of struck. Uh, uh, um, I think, actually, here, here's the best thing I can say. Uh, uh, there's a book by a guy called Siegel, S-E-G-A-L, and it's called Myth, A Very Short Introduction. It's part of a whole series of books called A Very Short Introduction. But Myth by Siegel, S-E-G-A-L, give, gives you, you know, quite a good survey, I think, of, uh, of the various theories. I should also say, actually, that uh, I didn't get round to uh, uh, the people who revolutionized fairy tale. But uh, the main one, I think, was uh, a Holocaust survivor called Bruno Bettelheim, uh, who brought out his book about uh, the importance of fairy tales in... Um, 1971, I think it was. Um, but he's been followed by a, a large number of, of writers, including uh, one of my former students, Alan Hunter, who teaches at Colby College. And he's written a string of books about this, one of which was called Stories We Need to Know. Pretty good title. But the one I, I think I put on the, on the reading list uh, was uh, Princes, Frogs and Ugly Sisters. But he's written several books about, uh, about the way to interpret fairy tales. Um, actually, with Bettelheim or Hunter or, or Max Luthi or, or any of these uh, people, I, I don't think you need to read the whole book. If you read an explanation of Snow White or, or, or um, uh, Rumpelstiltskin or Rapunzel, you get the idea. Once you've got the idea, you can do your own interpretations. And everybody has. Uh, <laughs> the whole field of uh, theorizing and rewriting fairy tales is... Uh, well, uh, it's quite explosive in, in terms of publishing. There are whole anthologies of, uh, of uh, rewritten fairy tales. Some of them, you know, all of them, I think, really, really very interesting. You're surprised that people can get so much out of the same set of tales, uh, but, but they have. Okay, well, that wasn't a very satisfactory answer because there's too many of them. But uh, um, yeah, look at Seagull and you will get a, an overview, quite a short overview. That's good. Very good, thank you. Now another question about a mythographer. Sharon Hoff has a question that I think has several other questions buried in it too. She wants to know, did Frazier come up with the model of the barren king and barren land on his own or based it on existing myths specifically? Well, uh, the, the, the sort of power of the Golden Bough I think came from the first 50 pages or so because in it uh, Fraser uh, repeated uh, something which he got from uh, a, a Roman work, and it was the story about the priest of Nemi uh, and uh, the, the ritual, according to Fraser, well, according to the Roman author he quotes, was that uh, there was this uh, um, sanctuary which uh, was patrolled by, uh, all the time by a priest, and it was centered on a tree. Now, if somebody got to the tree and broke a bough off it, he was entitled to challenge the priest, and uh, and the two men would then fight to the death, and the person who won, 
either remained as the priest or became the priest. But if you won and became the priest, then you were tied to the sanctuary until somebody came and killed you. So this was a clear case, as it were, of uh, a kind of permanent human sacrifice waiting to happen. And uh, Fraser related this to the story of Aeneas in, in Virgil's Aeneid going down to the underworld with the golden bow in his hand, which, which gives him the, 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 the right to escape from it. Uh, but uh, what Fraser said was that uh, this kind of uh, repeated pattern of uh, election and sacrifice, or selection and sacrifice, was something that was very widespread in the world, both in the classical world and in uh, the savage world, as the Victorians call it. But actually, to tell the truth, if you want a good example of it, you can find it in Arthurian romances. In the Arthurian romance of uh, Yvain, no. Yeah, Yvain, uh, the knight of the fountain. Uh, there's a magic fountain which is guarded by a knight, and if, when Yvain kills the knight, he becomes the knight of the fountain. Well, the story certainly had no root in that Latin tale. It's just, uh, it's just a very widespread belief. Um, so uh, um, there was a feeling that this was another, not quite universal experience, but a very widespread experience and belief. And the rest of Fraser's 12 volumes, which actually get rather tedious, consisted of him finding one more example after another. Um, but the idea was there you know, very early on. Uh, and uh, and I suspect that you know many people like me actually sort of didn't read much further than the first hundred pages. After that, they thought, oh, okay, we've got the idea. But I think that was Fraser's idea. I don't think uh, it had been it had been put into words before him, though people may have been kind of dimly aware of it. Well, here's another one that picks up from that and then connects to what you were saying about academia. Jansen Redeker asks. If fairy stories, myths, and fantasy are universal experiences in a way, and are, in my experience, enjoyed by pretty much everyone who gives the good ones a chance, why are they still looked down upon by society in general, and academia in particular, by those who haven't read it? And is there any hope of this changing? Well, I think there is hope of it changing, and uh, to tell the truth, there's nothing succeeds like success. And... Uh, especially in the, in the USA, where university education is a competitive business and where the humanities major enrollments have been dropping, I won't say like a stone, but they've certainly been dropping, uh, everybody has realized, well, no, not everybody, many people have realized that uh, if you want to draw in uh, uh, you know, humanities majors, you've got to talk to them about things they're interested in. So I think the... Uh, 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 the uh, the canon of, of classic works which I was brought up on, people said 50 years ago that that was going to be abolished, and then it seemed to me to get narrower all the time. Um, so, But I think, I think there is certainly a, a good prospect for the future, as is shown by the existence of the Mythgard Institute. Um, but um, as for the cause of it, well, I, I'm afraid I have a rather cynical explanation, um, and it's not mine for once. Um, my former colleague, uh, John Carey, Merton professor at the University of Oxford, um, he wrote a book called The Intellectuals and the Masses. And uh, the first chapter of that is very suggestive. In brief, it says that um, literature was the preserve of a 
you know, of the upper classes for many years. Um, but then, round about the 1860s, uh, Western countries started um, developing schemes of universal education, which led to, you know, 100% literacy. And uh, this new reading class uh, demanded uh, reading for itself. Um, and uh, uh, you got a, then a much uh, a broader set of, of literary reactions. Now, this was very unwelcome to the people who controlled literature and literary studies and the universities because they felt moved in on. They felt they were actually, they, they didn't like the competition. And it wasn't just they were being moved on in a literary way. As, uh, as John Kerry pointed out, they were also being moved in on physically because most of them lived in, you know, especially in Britain, in the kind of big houses, you know, around the outskirts of London and the major cities. But the suburbs were expanding all the time, and people were building railways and, you know, underground systems, and suddenly, around the big houses, there were whole suburbs of middle-class houses. And uh, so people like E.M. Forster and his book Howard's End is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Howard's End is one of these great houses out in the country inhabited by really uh, you know, uh, members of the literary class. Uh, and the threat to them is people building houses around them, but also uh, the arrival of a new clerkly class, clerks, people who spend their lives reading and writing, but who did not go to university, who did not have the kind of upper class education. And uh, in, a, in a rather feeble scene in Howard's End, uh, the, uh, this uh, little clerk figure who is regarded with contempt, uh, he's actually killed because a bookcase falls on him and all the books crush him to death. And that teaches him his place. He shouldn't be reading and writing. He should be out in the country plowing fields. Yeah. So I think there's this kind of... Uh, class hostility, uh, and uh, although uh, people, would, people would, would deny it, I think the reaction to this new literary audience, which created the new romancers after all, the new readers with appetite for new kinds of writing and no loyalty at all to the, the old kinds, um, uh, uh, I, I can I only say that, that, that uh, well, I said that, that, that they, they didn't like the competition, and they responded to it by trying to make literature more difficult and more inaccessible, and to be read only by the right kind of person. This, I'm a bit bitter about this, because when I was an undergraduate, this is what was being drummed into me. And it's part of why I became a medievalist. It's because I, I couldn't take the kind of, what I thought was the evident class bias. Um, I remember reading Henry James, you know. Uh, I mean, you might think class bias is, is a very English thing, but nobody could be snobbier than Henry James, unless it was T.S. Eliot, maybe. Uh, both of them Americans. Uh, but uh, I, I could see that they were, uh, they were trying to privilege, shall we say, a particular social class. And it wasn't my social class, and I, I didn't see why they should be privileged. And, you know, I'm not exactly a radical revolutionary, but I just didn't go along with all that stuff. I thought that they were members of a, a privileged class who um, resented challenge. And one thing I perhaps forgot to say, 
Yeah, I don't think I did say it actually, but I didn't say it at any length. Tolkien fits the image of the new writers for the new audience absolutely perfectly. Was Tolkien a member of the kind of upper educated class? He was very nearly a member of the underclass. Uh, he had a quite different uh, um, attitude, and uh, and I think this caused him a certain amount of uh, difficulty at Oxford. Though, I could also say, because Tolkien was a philologist, his teachers were absolutely nothing like members of the educated upper class. They were both working men who hadn't got degrees. They'd educated themselves. Joe Wright and Henry Bradley. Bradley taught himself to read upside down from reading his father's Bible open on his father's knee. He didn't learn it at school. Joe Wright taught himself all kinds of languages while he was working as a bobbin minder in a, in a cotton mill. He used to walk along, he'd have a book propped up at one end of his, his range, he'd read a page uh, and walk along tending his bobbins and then walk back and read the next page. Um, and he managed to do an enormous amount of reading while doing a 12-hour shift in a cotton mill. So uh, uh, it was quite possible for people to uh, break into uh, the educated world of Oxford, but only in certain subjects. And one of those was comparative philology, which was not really very popular with the educated classes of Oxford and Cambridge. So I'm afraid, I think my, my answer is that, that uh, there's a strong element of um, class feeling there, which is now suppressed and disguised and all that, but I think it's still there. Um, and I think uh, there's a word which people sometimes use, habitus. Your habitus is your kind of comfort zone. Well, um, their comfort zone is not my comfort zone. Um, and that's why I, I, I managed to resist a great deal of what I was told as an undergraduate. However, don't let me, uh, don't let me get all bitter and twisted about it. It was a long time ago, but it hasn't quite disappeared, I'm afraid. That's my theory. Well, and well, Hillary Justice gives a note here to back up what you said about it changing. Um, Hillary writes, both times I've taught a fantasy class, it's been overfilled. Yes. There, that these, these classes are getting on the curriculum, and when they yeah. are on the curriculum, they are filled up. Yes. Well, it's quite true. I mean, uh, when I was in charge of things at Leeds uh, University, uh, I set up a system where students were allowed, which isn't so common in the British system, uh, to uh, to pick and choose their courses a lot more. And uh, well, we were, we were we were swamped with uh, uh, courses on narrative, um, you know, courses on sagas, for instance. Eventually, I had to um, I had to cap the. Uh, uh, the enrollments on uh, on Old Norse saga courses at twice the capacity of the language lab because we couldn't take over the language lab for any more hours than that and I insisted that if they're going to do sagas they had to have at least some idea of Old Norse uh, but the number of people who wanted to take the course well we could have filled them four times over uh, so that was the case uh, uh, and uh, well I think uh, I, I think uh, popularity creates success, and success creates at least a change of attitudes within the academic world. Could change quicker, though. Well, if there's another genre that's been more looked down upon than fantasy, and yet is also wildly popular, it's science fiction. And Kate yeah. Neville wants to know where, if anywhere, does science fiction intersect with myth and fantasy? 
Well, um, what, what I said at the start of my book, author of the century, and it was rather carefully expressed, was uh, the dominant literary mode of the 20th century now is the fantastic. But the fantastic, in my vocabulary, is rather wider than, than what we call fantasy. The fantastic includes fantasy and science fiction, but it also includes what I call the ancestor genres of modern fantasy and modern science fiction. And they include, well, quite a lot of things like um, 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 fairy tale and myth, yeah, but also uh, fantastic voyages like, uh, you know, Gulliver's Travels or ghost stories uh, or anything really with a, a supernatural element in it or a non-real world element in it. So um, the fantastic, I think, is uh, the kind of umbrella uh, image, that, uh, umbrella term that I use, but fantasy and science fiction are two branches of it. You notice in the modern world, uh, they overlap a great deal. Uh, there's a magazine, of course, called Fantasy and Science Fiction, and very good it is too, still being published. But uh, when I did my collection, the Oxford Book of Fantasy, uh, Science Fiction Stories, I also did one called the Oxford Book of Fantasy Stories. And uh, in each collection of about 25 stories, I put one in the science fiction stories, I put one which looked like a fantasy story, but which I figured was science fiction. And in the fantasy stories, I put one which looked like science fiction, but which I figured was fantasy. But the thing was, the same authors turned up in both. Uh, most of the uh, prominent authors of modern American fantasy, like Jack Vance or Paul Anderson or George Martin, are also writers of science fiction. Um, and of course, what's happened uh, <laughs> has been that uh, authors of science fiction have edged towards being authors of fantasy. And I asked one of them once, not somebody whose name I mentioned, I said, uh, why did you stop writing science fiction and start writing fantasy? And he said, quarter the work, ten times the money. Uh, I thought, oh, well, that answers my question. I'm not sure I like the answer, though. Uh, but George Martin, may I say, was, I, I can't help thinking that when he started writing fantasy, he went to the dark side because he was such a good writer of science fiction. If you want a really good George Martin story, in, which is science fiction, read Tough Voyaging. That's tough, T-U-F, Tough Voyaging. It's great. Um, Game of Thrones is great too, but, you know, I kind of preferred the science fiction. Um, and Ursula Le Guin, of course, uh, writes both science fiction and fantasy, nearly all of them. They're, they're sibling genres in the modern world. Uh, and it's very easy for authors to shift from one to the other. Well, why don't we wrap it up with one slightly more personal question. Pharaoh Alden wants to know what your favorite fairy tales were when you were a lad. Ah, well now, that's, uh, that takes me back a bit, of course. Um, well, um, I was born in Calcutta, as you said at the start, so I always responded very well to uh, anything with a kind of an Indian flavor. Indeed, I was brought up on Indian fairy tales. It's just that I've lost all the books long ago, uh, but I still have a collection of uh, tales from the Punjab. And I, I also read children's versions of the Ramayana and the Mahab Mahabharata, you know, about how Hanuman, the monkey god, 
made a bridge of monkey tails across to Sri Lanka, to Ceylon. Um, and uh, uh, one, uh, two, two aspects of that, I suppose, were there was uh, Kipling's Jungle Book, you know, about Mowgli, the, the, the jungle boy, and also his Just So stories. Therefore, quite young children, of course, but uh, I think I was, I always liked how the elephant got his trunk. Um, and uh, what was another one? Um, how the elephant got his trunk. Uh, the butterfly that stamped. That was a great story about Suleiman bin Daud, which is the Arabic form of Solomon, son of David. Uh, I, I really, I like these, uh, and, and, and now, now I come to think of it, it's just taking me back this. I like the Arabian Nights. So uh, I guess those were the stories that I, uh, I kind of responded to long, long ago. Um, but, uh, well, I'm, th I'm grateful to be reminded of them. I shall have to go away and reread my tales from the Punjab, which I know is downstairs still, um, even though all the other ones have been lost long ago. Okay, well, uh, let me recommend those to you. Yeah. All right, great. Thank you so very much, Tom, and thank you to everyone who is here today and everyone who sent in questions. I'm sorry we did not get to all of the questions. Perhaps you can put some of these up on social media and continue the conversation. There were a lot more questions about specific works, about how you would categorize them and classify them. So. Well, I will try and log on to that and answer as many questions as I can. So I'll do that in the next few days. Great. Thank you very much. All right. Well, let me just remind everyone of some of the things I said at the beginning, especially relevant to this conversation, is the upcoming Mid-Atlantic Symposium on Speculative Fiction, because that's sort of the newer term we're using now to try to encompass science fiction and fantasy and modern myth. So check that out. That's a one-day event on October 3rd. And I do hope to see all of you back again in October for Malcolm Geith's guest lecture. So thank you, everyone, and thank you, Tom. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks very much. Bye-bye, everyone. <laughs>